Coming up next, the book ending reads, As I Lay Dying. My name is Nathan Albertson. I am, as always, your humble and obedient host. Could not be more humble or more obedient. I am a little little depressed today, Brandon. Why is that, Nathan? Well, we're not being joined. For one thing, we're not being joined for this recording session by our old chum and fellow comrade in arms and, and all around... Uh, good guy. All around good guy, Jacob... He Menzel is not here. Good at um, being a chum. Yeah, he's a good chum. Good at being shark food, as we established. Yeah, last last time. Uh, Jake is missing in action because he is the pastor who's a master of reading, and he is currently doing some pastoring that is not mastering any kind of reading, as far as we know. Just the reading of people's souls. The, yes, that. <laughs> and the reading of scripture, perhaps. Yes, <laughs> there's that, too. <laughs> you know, it occurred to me, Brandon, that prosaic matrimony is the erotic mystical solution to the modernist machine. And uh, I say that thought is... Out of this galaxy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are, of course, referencing the last episodes that we did about that hideous strength, still available on iTunes and at warhornmedia.com, where you can hear all of our wonderful thoughts. And learn the bookening lore. Learn the bookening lore. So you'll lore. know what's going on. Yeah. The yeah. callbacks and the it's, rich history we've developed. It's a dense world. It's a little bit like uh, Lost. Who would we be in the Lost universe? <laughs> who would we be? <laughs> Write in, listener, and tell us who you think. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm charming athletic kind of devil may i'm saying i'm gonna say sawyer for me probably. Oh, yeah. that's definitely you <laughs> and you are uh fat and like to eat chips <laughs> i'm gonna go with <laughs> Hurley? Hurley. hey it could be worse At least i won the lottery man no i'm just kidding brandon you're not fat or and you, i don't know that you like to eat chips you may or may not like to eat uh, chips. I do but my wife's put me on a diet hello wife thank you for the diet <laughs> She listens to this. Brandon is currently transforming from Hurley into Jack. Wow. You could always see the Jack buried beneath the Hurley in Brandon, but... He's got to dig away. No, I'm sorry, Brandon. You wouldn't be Hurley. Who would you be? You would be... Who would you want to be? You think you're Locke, the enigmatic... Uh, I probably would be Locke. Bald guy. Um, you could be Kate. I could be Kate. Some bratty woman that runs off and does things all the time that are stupid. Gets all the men to fall in love with her. Get all the men to fall in love with her. I'll be Desmond. So be Desmond, yeah. There we go. Wait, doesn't Desmond... He does something. ...abandon everybody? I won't be Desmond. I'll be John Locke. I'll lock, I'll lock that in. That's my final answer. <laughs> and who would Jake be? Oh, he's uh, he's Jack. He's Jack. Obviously, Jake, knows is who Jack. Jake is Jack. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, just he's... one letter away. Yeah, <laughs> two letters, I guess. And if you heard the story of how Jake got his tattoo, it's amazing. Yeah, we can make a great episode of the booketing right there. That's right. Um, Jake and I kill each other in the end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. So that's Lost. and uh, But this is not a Lost podcast. It's a literature podcast. Yes. <laughs> and as such, we're going to continue discussing As I Lay Dying. It, it, Faulkner actually, the story goes, and I don't, this is just one of those anecdotes, the story is that a, uh, a, a, a typesetter who wasn't paying attention actually misspelled his name, put a U in there, and um, they asked Faulkner whether he wanted to change it, and he just said, either way suits me. That's my that's my Faulkner. I guess I, it's like my... It sounded like my, my eight, Bill Clinton. Either way, shoot me. <laughs> 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 Mine is worse. 
Uh, I so, guess we should probably clarify he has no relation to the islands. The Faulkner Islands? No, they're not named after him. <laughs> no, neither Peter Falk. No. He, this is, he did not play Columbo. We should no. clarify that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just name all the things he wasn't. Right. <laughs> Just one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> he would solve mysteries and <laughs> kind of egg people into... He, he was like Jessica Fletcher. Yeah. Faulkner was. There we go. Well... Um, oh no, I mean, yay, there goes the airplane, uh, what is the airplane, I forget my own stick, Brandon, what is the baggage check, oh, baggage check, (laughs) which ties into airplanes because they have baggage, yep, (laughs) um, I just need to switch this stick up, I think, but, um, planes are landing, check your baggage, please, yeah, check your baggage, what baggage did you bring, here, I'll start, because maybe people want to hear from me now, or you're giving me, like, an icy, cold stare, no, they probably do, they want to hear, they want to hear more from me, nobody ever wants to hear more from me, (laughs) no, they do, they do, I just, I just, I always keep the people in mind, maybe they just want to hear a different timber of voice now, instead of me droning on, Mm -hmm. No. Southern literature. Southern literature. Blah, 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 blah. Postulate. Blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> said a good imitation of myself. Yeah, but then mine would be like, hey, everybody. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, that's why we need Jake. He's like the, we're, we're, I'm yin, you're yang, and Jake's like. The line in between. The line in between, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> He's holding us together. He holds us together, <laughs> yes. We're swirling towards madness right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I have read a number of Faulkner. The first thing I read was probably A Rose for Emily, and I probably read it, and one of my reader listeners will know I've read a lot of horror compilations. That's a one that tends to turn up in uh, horror story anthologies, even though it's you know it's, it's kind of it's pretty grotesque but it's not i don't know whether it really belongs there but it's good good little story you're probably familiar with it if you've gone to high school as i assume many of our listeners have i'd postulate at least 30 <laughs> percent postulate at least 30 percent of our listeners <laughs> um we are losing our minds. keep going uh i read that and then i read for some stupid reason i read sanctuary which is a really not a very good faulkner novel he himself i think said that he wrote it just to make money and tried to put it, make it commercial and is a really kind of a violent, mean-spirited, sexually exploitative kind of novel. I mean, yeah, it's, it's it's perverse. It's perverse, so don't read Sanctuary. And then I read As I've Laved Dying. I've read some other Faulkner. I love Southern Gothic. I love Southern literature in general, but Faulkner's always been, he's just difficult. He's very difficult, and I suppose we'll talk about that more. He's always been difficult, and I think I read him a little young, which I I think I've said this before, but I always encourage our younger listeners to have humility and wait to read some of these things until you have a little bit more age and experience, because I think you can just, you can blow it by reading something too soon that you're not really prepared to understand, so I don't know. Just listen to awesome podcasts like this and you'll figure out which ones you can understand and which ones you can't, I guess. I don't know what to do about that, but I would I would say there are some things that come with age and I probably read Faulkner a little young, which warped my understanding of him because his language is difficult and his themes are very, I don't know, he's just difficult. But I do love Southern grotesque stories. I love Cormac McCarthy. I love Flannery O'Connor. I love a lot of the stuff that's come out of Faulkner, certainly. I think Faulkner is interesting as far as that stuff goes in that he doesn't give you those hooks to hang on to. Like Cormac McCarthy is always going to give you some some ultra violence or some some just like obvious biblical apocalyptic poetry or something. Faulkner he doesn't give you those entry points, and that can be frustrating for someone who's just picked it up for a good story and not for the purposes of scholarship. Or Flannery O'Connor's the same way. She's gonna get she she's gonna give you a good story and all the other elements. So that's my been my experience of Faulkner. I've always found him to be difficult, and I've always kind of admired him without really feel like maybe quite had the chance to wrap my head around everything that he is and everything he's done. Did you know he was hard? 
before reading him? No. Like, had I you heard any, did he, did he have a reputation when you were coming to him? I don't think he had a reputation. I don't really remember. I think I just, you know, when I was in my early teenage years, I decided I wanted to be into literature. So I read, I just read the great names, the Dostoevsky's, the Hemingway's, the stuff like that. And Faulkner's one of those names that's just, he's in the pantheon. So I picked up some Faulkner. Um, I must've had a, I must've known that Sanctuary was had some illicit elements. It must have been attractive for that reason. I don't know why else I would have written. Had that be your like first Had novel. it be my first Faulkner novel, which was, a, again, a dumb Falk, first Faulkner novel. But, um, yeah, I don't really remember what I thought about Faulkner before, except for that I know I'd read A Rose for Emily, and that's obviously a good story. Yeah. But your context, Brandon? <clears throat> yeah, I, I wanted to know because I didn't read Faulkner really until college. And I, when I read T.S. Eliot, I knew T.S. Eliot was difficult before reading him. And that's part of the draw for why I wanted to read him in the first place. The same kind of goes for James Joyce when I tried to read Ulysses, which I still don't understand Ulysses. And I don't know if anybody actually understands Ulysses, which was kind of the point, which I guess we'll talk about when we talk about James Joyce. But when I first read Faulkner, I read him in class and we read Light in August, which actually is a, one of his more readable books. And it's good. And I, I enjoyed it, but the style was strange and it was different and it was new. And it was around the time where this was a class where I was reading a lot of authors who I hadn't really had a chance to read or been attracted to. So I read Kafka at the same time, The Castle and The Trial. And so, yeah, I didn't have much of a thought about Faulkner when I first was going towards him. I was I read more like Dickens and Tolstoy and those more classic even though Faulkner's famous and he's known as a classic now, there's a sort of author that a homeschooled, classically educated boy is going to find. Right. Dickens Faulkner, being... Yeah, yeah, Faulkner's not on that list. Yeah. I, I, I want to add, by the way, since you brought it up, that Faulkner was a great defender of... He, he was asked once, I believe, there's all kind of like Faulkner. He was he always gave, gave these crazy interviews where he said the weirdest things. Uh, Faulkner was apparently something of a character. He was diffident. He didn't, he didn't necessarily like to be asked about the craft, so he'd always give these funny answers. But um, what I'm trying to say is somebody asked Faulkner, how do you become a great writer? And he said, read Anna Karenina. And the person said, okay, I've read it. What do I do now? And he said, read it again. That might have just been because Faulkner didn't want to give a straight answer to the question, but I think it's also because props to Tolstoy. Yeah. So, sorry, just want to throw that in there. Go ahead. No, I think that's right. Faulkner had good taste. Good for you, Faulkner. Good for you, Faulkner. Yeah, so I read him and as an undergrad. I liked him. It was around the time that I was getting introduced to a lot of these different styles that I hadn't read before. And so I tried reading Absalom, Absalom which is probably one of his harder novels right up there with The Sound and the Fury. Didn't really understand it. Then I read him again as a grad student and came to sort of appreciate what he was trying to do. And now that I read him again, I don't know what I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I do know what I think. We're just sort of holding that in suspense right. <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, but that's sort of my baggage. It's I hadn't really ever thought of it before, but yeah, so... This is of interest to some of our people who are listening, because I think some of them are probably homeschooled kids, but they've... You read things like All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. You read A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Those yeah. are the novels you read from the early 20th century. You don't really read James Joyce or Faulkner or Virginia Woolf. You might do Orwell if you're a more progressive. Uh, yeah, you might. Or, Animal Farm. You might do, especially, yeah, especially Animal Farm because it's got 100% less sex than yeah. uh, 1940 or uh, 1941 than that Spielberg movie 1941 with yeah. John Belushi. Uh, 
what's, what? what's the name of the, the George Orwell book? 1980. 1984. There you go. But there is there is kind of a pan. It's like what books have been made into great illustrated classics? Because those are the books that homeschoolers read. It's like yeah. they're probably the only people that still read Robert Louis Stevenson and Ivanhoe and oh, yeah. some of that stuff that's not really good. Good. <laughs> 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 I don't think I've ever met anyone that's not a homeschooler that's read Ivanhoe. I mean, yeah, who really cares about Ivanhoe? The movie's it's okay. pretty bad. Yeah, it's it's just bad writing. Yeah, but, um, sorry, Ivanhoe fans. Uh, I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, sometimes you just have to you just have to stop and think about the fact that there are Ivanhoe fans out there, and <sighs> your lip curls in disgust as Brandon's just did, and. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to lose our Ivanhoe fans, Brandon. Oh, no. Come back. <laughs> Come back, Ivanhoe fans. As I push the boat away from the shore. Come back. <laughs> oh, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> Here, let me start that motor. <laughs> oh, come back. Come back. Because you light the fuse on the rocket, Looney Tunes style. <laughs> Uh, that's right. We're going to tie Ivanhoe fans to an Acme Corporation rocket <laughs> and then send them shooting across the desert. Um, what we're talking about, I'm sorry. My baggage. Oh, somehow. your baggage. Yes. Yeah. You, we got off on uh, certain books that homeschoolers read. Yeah. So that, that was that was my baggage. Yeah. Pretty much no expectations. When I first met Faulkner and then liked his style, read quite a bit of what he had written. I was really into the, I think the like what is valuable about him is sort of the cadence and mm-hmm. the imagery that he creates. And also this deep sense of history and longing and despair and doom and that just resound throughout his novels, especially mm-hmm. in something like um, Absalom, Absalom, just so masterfully interwoven throughout that whole novel and the different themes that he's dealing with there of fate and despair and like I said, doom and these things that are echoes of the South. Yeah. If you want to read about fascinating, yeah. like how the past haunts the present you just can't do better than the whole southern school of writers i mean i think because of the civil war i mean i'll just i'll postulate here that they had to bear the guilt and the responsibility of a great sin that they committed collectively that they were then brutally punished for and um that echoes through southern literature to this day i mean i think you can't it's one of those things that you just are kind of whether it's on the periphery or whether it's the central focus it's something that's being dealt with is the blood guilt basically i mean it's in marilyn robinson with his grandfather and with his father and it's in um certainly cormac mccarthy has made a career out of finding catharsis for the blood guilt through giant blood baths in many of his books and there might be some redemption but it's just blood baths and then really uh in her own weird harsh catholic way that's what flannery o'connor connor does is guilt redemption and and blood so yeah. faulkner has less of that he doesn't give you catharsis through violence like those two do but he gives you i don't even know if he gives you catharsis and that's one of the things that's weird about him yeah i don't think that there's catharsis in faulkner certainly not in this novel but when you read Cormac McCarthy or Flannery O'Connor, you see how hard won and bloody that catharsis is, and you begin to understand why Faulkner maybe wouldn't think that there was catharsis or there was redemption. I mean, you see the only redemption that those two seem to portray is the redemption of blood and of death and of a very hard won redemption. What's the name of the main character in Light in August? Because she's seen as being the closest to that. Lana Grove. Lana Grove. Pregnant Lana Grove. Mm-hmm. She's seen as often seen as being the closest, and also Joe Christmas to an extent, the closest that a character gets to 
some sort of redemption and mm-hmm. a happy ending in a Faulkner novel. Yeah, very oftentimes his stories just kind of, as this one do, they do have an arc and they do have a, they, they do build to a, a denouement, but you kind of have to look for it. If you're not paying attention, it can kind of feel like the story just stops, runs out of gas because... Well, something we haven't mentioned, Dan, actually is fitting because of the name of this novel is this uh, the history of Greek tragedy mm-hmm. and the sense of tragedy. Well, how, you should say how it ties in with the the, the novels called called Azalea Dying, which is a quote from Agamemnon. We were trying to get this straight before we started recording. It's uh, Agamemnon because his wife murdered him or something like yeah. that, right? Yep. And, sh- and then she refused to close his eyes as he was taken down to Hades. Right. And it's, that's basically the quote is as I lay dying, the old she, witch refused to close my eyes or as something. I was taken down to Hades. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, the, I mean. In a sense, this is a retelling of the Odyssey. You have the trying to go and bury the mother, and then right in the middle of the novel, you have her ghost enter in as a character. And so you have these echoes of Greek literature that way. And so, right, mm-hmm. her, her ghost does yeah, get she a starts, consciousness. Yeah, she starts right? talking. Yeah, we yeah. see things from her point and so of that's, view. That, and that is towards the middle of the novel, which obvi- it's symbolically it's supposed to make you think of Odysseus's descent into Hades, mm-hmm. where he talks to all the ghosts of the past. As structurally, it's a part of this novel in the way that it is laid out and the sort of odyssey they have to go through to get her dead body finally buried. But also this sense of tragedy. And in Greek tragedy, especially the tragedy was attached to houses. So you had the house of Agamemnon. You had the house of Oedipus. They actually had names. I'm trying to remember what the proper names was. I'm sure Doug Wilson knows. I'm sure Doug Wilson does know. (laughs) (laughs) But did that knowledge help him when he was writing his Beowulf? No. (laughs) But the point being is that the sins of the father that then just permeate throughout this family's genealogy, it means that it's like a curse. And the way that these stories play out is, is the curse real or is the curse created because of the terror that they think that the curse is real? And so you see this all throughout Faulkner's novels. And it's this tragic sense of just the drums of your fate and you can't get away from them. Just the way that you can't escape your genealogy and your bloodline and how that's connected to tragedy. Because a lot of tragedy, even as far back, well, with Hamlet, right, it's tied to who you are, especially as it relates to your father and to the blood that's running through you and how that shapes what you're going to do, why you've done it, what's going to happen to you, all these things. Right. But I think the additional layer of despair that Faulkner brings to it, as opposed to Greek tragedy, in Greek tragedy, it's almost like the characters are puppets or pawns of the of the gods. They're drawn inevitably to this fate. They really don't have a lot of autonomy. In Faulkner, it has the same feeling of inevitable doom, but it seems it plays with the idea of it perhaps being self-inflicted. It's it, it's almost like it's the difference between the inevitable failure of someone who's just dragged to their doom and the inevitable failure of someone who walks sadly to their doom because they think there's no other place for them to go. That's right. There are no gods <laughs> or playing with the, the Bundrons, but there's also no gods to save them. Yeah. And so bringing Cormac McCarthy and Flannery O'Connor into the discussion is helpful because he doesn't have that violence. Like you said, Cormac McCarthy is very similar. Like if you read the road, Mm -hmm. it's sort of just this faded, slow plotting towards fate, Mm -hmm. faded, slow, (laughs) faded, slow plotting towards fate. Yes. Faded, slow plotting towards your doom, whatever Mm -hmm. that is. It's either just the existential nothingness of not having any hope of redemption, right. of life not having purpose, of your inability to escape your sin and your 
failure and the failure of your father. And you don't get any of that sort of release that Falk, or that uh, Cormac McCarthy gives you. With Flannery O'Connor, it's all comic and grotesque and yeah. weird. And you're allowed to sort of yeah. distance yourself from it just enough. You can still feel the pain, and it's brutal pain, but yeah. you're, you're allowed to laugh at it, too. You're allowed to stand outside of it and see how ridiculous these characters yeah. are. And there is some comedy in Faulkner, but not nearly as as much. It's yeah. very serious. It's very um, brooding. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've used that word yet, but right. it's sort of brooding. And there just doesn't seem to be a lot of redemption. I mean, in Flannery O'Connor, there is redemption sometimes, and it's always very hard one and brutal and often coupled with death. And in Cormac McCarthy, we'll get to Cormac McCarthy one of these years. We don't have him on the slate for this year. I would argue there is, I don't know if there's redemption, but at least you can spit in the eyes of fate. You, you know, you can, the kid can tell the judge he's a monster before whatever happens, happens in blood meridian. The, 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 the old man can love his son before he dies in the road. Uh, the, the, the woman can tell sugar and no country for old men. The coin didn't do anything. You're, you're bad before he does what he does to her. So there's, there's some sense, there's some cathartic release. There's some, you can at least be brave in the face of you, you still have some choice in, in Cormac McCarthy, I would say. Not that this is a discussion of Cormac McCarthy, but... No, I think that it's helpful, though. Because the fate in Faulkner is almost purely intellectual. It's all interior, which is goes to the stream of consciousness sort of angle that we've talked about. So that means a lot of the judgment, a lot of the fate that's felt, the doom, the brooding, is all interior to the characters. There's not a lot of bodily stuff that happens in Faulkner. There right. is some. The coffin that gets, or the, yeah. coffin, the, the river crossing yeah, is the big so, one event in yeah, this novel. So matter and stuff and bodies, they play a role, but not as much as the violence and stuff in McCarthy. That's his twist on the whole Faulknerian view of the world, which is really... More just an existential. Uh, so we didn't talk about the fact, the, the way that philosophy was changing, but it is a very sort of existential dread and sense of the universe that you see come out in other th- writers that are a little bit later, like with Beckett. There's a sort of waiting for Godot sense, though Beckett takes it with his weird Irish humor right. and gives it its own twist. Existentialism but, being, for just for for idiots that don't know that it might be listening. Oh, you want me to tell? Oh, them? Yeah. Uh, dot dot dot. Yeah. <laughs> It's a uh, philosophy that came especially out of French schools of thinking that basically this is all we got. Your existence shapes who you are, and postmodernism comes out of it, the sense that you shape your own reality. Existentialism is a little more, it's it's a little distance from that, but that basically you don't exist until you have no pre existing identity. Mm -hmm. Your identity is shaped as you live. Right. And that your existence is all you got, right? And there's nothing. There's nothing outside of what you perceive. So your choice so. is to embrace nihilism or to make your own destiny, whatever that can, whatever make your own meaning, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, and so obviously, one thing we haven't mentioned with Faulkner is the fact that I don't believe he was a Christian. So that that's, I mean, that's the missing ingredient from like with Flannery O'Connor. Her answer to the Faulknerian dilemma is obvious: God is the one who judges. We make our we make these little ruts for ourselves, and we get self involved, and we're obsessed with our blood lineage and fate and doom, and then finally we're faced with the dove descending like an icicle to pierce our heart, and or the the misfit who's going to shoot us in the head, and life suddenly takes a shape and meaning because God has done that to us; He's judged us, right? And with McCarthy, life not only has this sort of inevitability to it that has no meaning, and so that's that's really important right, is with existentialism, it seems like life has purpose, but yet it doesn't. It's meaningless, 
right? right? It's meaningless outside of the meaning that you give to it, which is a very sad way. Of, and that's where a lot of the sadness in these books come from, is Faulkner playing with the fact that here you have these Southerners who are desperately trying to use their family like Darl, mm-hmm. right? He's trying to give his mother's death meaning, and so he wants to burn the barn down around her. Right. And yet there is no meaning. They're just, they're trying to shape this for themselves. And so Faulkner is trying to play with the way that we try to make the world make sense to ourselves. But the joke is on them because we get to see it from all these different points of view. And each point of view is its own weird stream of consciousness. They don't all tie together. There's nothing, it's very hard to even parse what of permanence happened in the novel and then the whole thing is just impermanence you know i mean what's the dad comes home with a new wife and addie's gone and forgotten after she caused them all this trouble so there's this fluidity between consciousnesses and realities and none of them are actually the reality because each person has their past and their what they believe and what they think and so cora is very she you know you have the scene with addie where she said that cora thought she didn't know what sin was, mm-hmm. right? And so she just kept trying to say, you have no sense of sin. And then Addie trying to make sense of Anne's and mm-hmm. what love was to her through Anne's. And then Darl trying to make sense of Jewel and his mother and Jewel trying to make sense of his family. And all of these seem permanent and real while you're reading it from the perspective of that character. But then they just sort of evaporate when you go to the mm-hmm. next character. And, the, and there's almost, yes. you could argue, a little bit of a black joke in that everyone that really tries to grab onto something permanent. The people like Dar- Daryl that, you know, grab for that permanence, it evaporates and they fall flat on their face. You know, Daryl's, of course, the one that ends up in an insane asylum or prison or whatever it is. He's because his mind can't cope with, you know, he is trying to assign value where his dad and some of his brothers are just kind of blithely accepting the lack of value and just going on with their pleasure just being you know dewey dell's just wrapped up in solving the problem of her pregnancy and so you have these people the the ones that survive are the ones that don't want more out of life than so no wonder it's sad no wonder there's a tone of sadness to all of this right the sort of the predominant theme that comes out of this is just this is you know this is who we are there's nothing outside of your consciousness there's nothing outside of the way that you perceive the world you have all these outside forces that shape you you have your family lineage. You have the fact that you're a Southerner. You have all these things that do affect you and your existence. But when push comes to shove, you are the only thing that is real to you. Yeah. Which is weird. It's a weird way of seeing the world. And it is very tied to existence. I, I mean, I'm, I have no clue whether or not Faulkner would have even known who Sartre or Camus were. But you can see it doesn't. it shouldn't be surprising that the atmosphere that created that sort of philosophy also created Faulkner. Right. And allowed for Faulkner. And the big difference with Cormac McCarthy is yet there, there is something outside of, you know, there is like a violent fate in yeah. Cormac McCarthy. It There's just seems some... like violence is the name of the game. And no matter who you are, you're going to end up with your intestines in your lap. Right. <laughs> hey, it's our next t-shirt. Um, <laughs> no matter who you are. That's, uh, Have you ever read Cities of the Plain? Is that the John one about... Grady Cole gets just... The rapist in the cave one? No, 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 no. no. That's that's the sequel to All the Pretty Horses, yeah. So uh, Cities of the Plain is the last in that trilogy. Yeah. And John Grady Cole from All the Pretty Horses, the spoiler for anyone who's going to read this, he gets a surprisingly brutal end. <laughs> 
it's awful. <laughs> Not surprising for Cormac McCarthy. Oh, no, yeah, really, but, but yeah, it's just... <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, McCarthy. I mean, you can tell how much we love talking about Car- uh, Faulkner. We keep <laughs> going to McCarthy, but... Uh, well, I, if I could make another postulate. Oh, sure. As beautiful as Faulkner's writing is, I do think that Cormac McCarthy kind of added an element that... I don't think Cormac McCarthy has a bad novel. No. Faulkner does. Yeah. And I just think that Cormac McCarthy took what Faulkner did and like perfected it. I think, yeah. He gave it biblical grandeur and yeah. some sort of meaning, maybe an existential one. I don't know. We'll talk about that more when we get to Cormac McCarthy, which we will in year three. I hereby declare, dear listener, he, I don't know, there's some weird Gnostic, mystic kind of thing going on, some weird tarot, I don't know what Cormac McCarthy thinks, but he's got a little bit more going on spiritually than... Uh, Faulkner does at least. And so, yeah, I think that that's pretty much where we're left with Faulkner is then what is left in life. And I'm sure that I'm sure people who are actually Faulkner scholars would be able to say all sorts of reasons were wrong. Right. But that's the way that I read and see what he's doing. And so what's left is just sort of the beauty and cadence and music of language and art. One of the ways you can deal with it is by creating. Right. Well, Faulkner actually said something very like that. I think I have the quote here. Faulkner himself said in discussing art with the Paris Review, since man is mortal, the only immortality possible for him is to leave something behind him that is immortal since it will always move. This is the artist's way of scribbling. Kilroy was here on the wall of the final and irrevocable oblivion through which he must someday pass. There's Faulkner for you. Little metaphor about a guy carving his name in a tree, and so that's what he's doing with Azalea dying. He's taking this gener- this story of a family trying to get their mother to her final resting place, mm-hmm. and he's giving music and um, beauty to each of these inner dialogues of people that you wouldn't expect to have beauty to their inner dialogue, and he's elevating these stories that you wouldn't expect to be elevated and dignifying them. And I mean, so like this line. From Darl, how often have I lain beneath rain on a strange roof thinking of home? That's just... That's poetry. Yeah, that's a beautiful line. Yeah. And so you get these moving thoughts that happen. And you do get a sense... uh, I I do think that he had a good sense of psychology and the relationship between people. Mm -hmm. And so like the the relationship between Darl and Jewel feels real. Yeah. There's jealousy there. There's uh, brotherly tension and anger and frustrations. Yeah. I mean, if we're just going to talk about what we like about Faulkner, those would be the things. He was a good student of human nature and he was a beautiful writer in many ways. A little rich for my taste personally sometimes, but like you said, there's, there's gorgeous lines. I mean, just any of this you could turn to. Yeah, when Addy finally comes in. It's really beautiful. Oh, this here. Jewel sits on his horse like they were both made out of wood, looking straight ahead. I believe in God. 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 I believe in God. Yes. Right? It's just... So you get little moments like this that just sort of blossom out of the story that are really moving and beautiful. And you can get get the sense that he's kind of playing on two levels. He's playing on... For, well, as far as being being experimental, you know, he's not going to try and tell you a traditional narrative, and he never does. Right now, his stories still have plot to them. Right. There's a plot here. There's tension. There's the barn burning, and then Darrell going to jail. All that is, it's narrative. There, there is a narrative that's happening. Yeah, it's actually a fairly linear story. Yeah. That's it's how does the family get from point A to point B? How do they solve this problem? Of it's a, it's a, it's a uh, what do you call it? A, it's a picaresque, an anti-picaresque journey or something. I don't know. Yeah, but the narrative is never the primary interest. The narrative is there so that he can play with these other themes. The relationships between the family members, their inner thoughts, 
their musings on death and love, on God. And so that's Dewey Dell. And then that that part that I just read, it just comes at the end of one of her short snippets. And then just the cadence. I keep saying cadence, but that's probably that's the best. It is, yeah. It's just his way of writing poetry with narrative and with what he's saying. And so there's just a rhythm and a music to, and a sort of droning. And his cadence matches the feeling of the scene in a in yeah. really nice ways. When he's making the coffin and sawing, Faulkner really yeah. just makes you feel just that image of mom just uh, dying in the room. And there's this brother outside. I don't remember what the word that he uses is, but there's some sort of, of just the saw, you know, and you can just, you can just hear it like. Yeah. So he gives you these great, still lifes. We're not going to have a lot to say about this uh, novel listener, but the the one really good thing we want to say about it, or that I want to say about it at least, is that it's a technical marvel in terms of the way it's put together and in terms of the individual scenes and the Faulkner's descriptive powers are amazing. Yeah, I guess for someone who hasn't read it, it's helpful to know that this is, it's broken up into short chapters. Each chapter is a varying length. Some of them are just one word or like one sentence long. Those are very rare, but each is from the perspective of a different character. And I think that 15 various characters get voices throughout the book, but most of them are the family members who are traveling. Occasionally you get the thoughts of like the farmer who's watching them or the guy who owns the pharmacy, right? At the mm-hmm. end, yeah. You get his perspective on Dewey Dell. That's the way that the novel's set up. Where does Addie first give her? talk uh page 176 it ends i think yeah yeah and so with addy for example you get he did not know that he was dead then sometimes i would lie by him in the dark hearing the land that was now of my blood and flesh and i would think ants why ants why are you ants i would think about his name until after a while i could see the word as a shape a vessel and i would watch him liquefy and flow into it like cold molasses flowing out of the darkness into the vessel until the jar stood full and motionless a significant shape profoundly without life like an empty door frame and then i would find that i had forgotten the name of the jar i would think the shape of my body where i used to be a virgin i'll skip that <laughs> and then i would think cash and darl that way until their names would die and solidify into a shape and then fade away i would say all right it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what they call them and so yeah you just get these weird strange philosophical musings about life and about who we are and about um our relationship to uh, language and to and it's all pretty and it's all like this is kind of brooding and it's also when you try to think about Addie and who she actually is actually having these thoughts he like we've said he's giving dignity to their thinking maybe they've had thoughts like this but probably not right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well that's where you begin to get into what doesn't quite click for me and i don't know whether it's a flaw of the novel but just something that's always hard for me to wrap my head around just uh personally my subjective opinion it's it's just hard for me to fathom why darl for example as the son of a southern hick farmer is is saying these grandiose kind of not just biblical but even more like where's the darl quote that i um oh yeah there it is Darrell says, from here, they do not appear to violate the surface at all. It is as though it had severed them both at a single blow, the two torsos moving with infinitesimal and ludicrous care upon the surface. It's like, who talks like that? It's from the second son of an inarticulate farmer idiot. I mean, and I know that there's something artistic going on there, like... Faulkner is giving us like the musings of their soul, the groanings that are too deep for words or something like that. Like this is what they would say if they could articulate, but it's just kind of (laughs) weird. 
I don't know what else to say about it, Brandon. Help me. Tell me why I'm wrong or or why you're right or why I'm right. <laughs> so you don't like it because he's get, he's like what I've said. He's dignifying the thoughts of this person. Well, I mean that makes me sound like kind of a jerk. <laughs> 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 no, I don't. I don't like seeing their thoughts dignified. I think, you know. Well, I, this is white trash. You can't think of Faulkner as really writing realism in the sense I that, not. like Steinbeck was writing realism, or even Hemingway was writing realism. He's not trying to be realistic in that sense. He's writing from the perspective of these people in a language higher than what they'd actually use, which but, I guess has a long and noble history and yeah, Shakespeare and everybody else. Yeah, exactly. So he's being very theatrical and also at the same time, probably giving thoughts that they would have like her thinking about her isolation from Anne's and the fact that he's laying there right beside her, but he doesn't even know, she doesn't know who he is, but he's giving her poetic expression that she wouldn't actually have access to. There's, that's what he's doing. I'm not sure I've convinced myself that I mean, other than just being pretty, that that's valuable. I mean, I guess what would you rather have this or the actual way they'd speak? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite sure I know the answer to that. I mean, so the, yeah, that brings you into the whole the, the whole question of realist literature versus more poeticized literature like this. I mean, I guess I don't mind when an author poeticizes because many of the bo- great books do. I mean, the example of one that we've read, a very famous example is Mark Twain. And in Huckleberry Finn, Huck is much more articulately funny and interesting and poetic than any 12 or 13 year old boy that I've ever met. But you don't mind. It just feels like you kind of understand that it's not supposed to be. You know what I think it is? I think it's that there's a clear boundary and a clear form that someone like Shakespeare is playing. Of course, everybody talks like a very language fluent uh, Victorian and not Victorian. Um, Elizabethan. Elizabethan in a Shakespeare play because that's the form that he's using is a poetry. And, and in Mark Twain, it's the, it's a humorous American twangy form that he's using. And so you understand the form, you understand it's not strictly realistic. The reason my brain doesn't quite make it compute in Faulkner is because it sort of feels like he is giving you the nitty gritty, this is what life is really like, man. But then it's combined with this language that's not what life is really like, man. So it's these two things clashing. But then you could argue that Twain has the same clash between realism and poetry. So I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know why it rubs me, why I can't rap, I can't enter into it the same way with Faulkner as I can with many other authors. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's like, what are you demanding of the story? So think about like that hideous strength is very different than this. Right. The hideous strength is straightforward. It's actually when it gives you the thoughts of Mark and Jane, they're probably what C.S. Lewis really wanted you to think their thoughts would have been. Right. People like that, right? I think the same kind of for Hemingway, though you could argue it's a little bit dignified too. And But then take someone like uh, Jane Austen. The thoughts you get there are definitely the thoughts of the characters. But the difference is, is she's telling you the thoughts. And so they are in the way we discussed, mixed with Jane Austen's voice in a way that's sometimes hard to yeah. disentangle. Yeah, what freedom do you give the artist to create something and try to do something. Um, I think that Faulkner was very committed to whatever he was doing. Right. And I guess I'm just it, not sure what it was. And he it. did it. I mean, he did it consistently, especially with As I Lay Dying with him trying to, and moving forward with his other novels, they all have this sort of same tone. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, but whatever it was, um, I think it was 
trying to give poetry to narratives and to dramas that you wouldn't typically want to see poetry in or be or tend to see poetry in and then to uh, I keep saying the word dignify but i do think that's kind of what he's doing well yeah dignify people like lana grove mm-hmm. or um joe christmas that's mm-hmm. the guy i was thinking of right and then he does sometimes have characters who would probably actually think this way like quentin compton he's a rich spoiled kid who's going to go to vanderbilt and so he would have these thoughts and so then it's interesting why then does he give people like ants bundren and i mean does ants really have that beautiful of thoughts no darl's the one that yeah principally is way too sophisticated in the way he expresses himself yeah but there is i mean so this yeah this is stream of consciousness it's all interiority but then it's not really because it's there's a even to like jewel and now them's the others sitting there like buzzards waiting fanning themselves because i said if you wouldn't keep on sawing and nailing at it until a man can't sleep even in her hands laying on the quilt like two of them roots dug up and tried to wash and you couldn't get them clean i can see the fan in dewey dell's arm i said if you just let her alone sawing and knocking and keeping the air always moving so fast on her face so as you read it you begin to get a sort of rhythm and and musicality to it that you can't imagine jules real thoughts would have had right right yeah i just think that he was trying to create something that someone who likes the sound of language would like to read with the ideas and thoughts that that he thought were going to be in these characters minds but then given shape and sort of in this sort of imagery that you would find in poetry. So like the empty jar with his body moving like molasses into it. That's a that's a sort of image you're not going to get from, I think, Addy in real life. Right. Yeah. And I guess, I, you know, it's like, I usually don't mind that. I hate literature that prides itself on being realistic and therefore dull, you know, yeah. because life is full of color and vitality anyway. And I think art should improve on life. So, I mean, I like witty dialogue. I, I don't, I don't hold Jane Austen to the standard of the fact that in real life, not everyone is just t- trading awesome witty barbs back and forth, but in Jane Austen, they sure are. You know, I don't watch a Shakespeare play and say, oh gee, well, like a real Danish prince wouldn't have said that amazing speech when no one was around. I don't, it's not that I'm holding, I want to hold Faulkner to a standard of realism. It's just the combination of the extremely Baroque Faulkner's beautiful laborious prose with some of these characters who are very simple doesn't always seem to meld well to me it feels jarring sometimes it's just it takes it takes you out of it a little bit or takes me out of it a little bit where i'm just like oh you think that was what faulkner wanted i don't know i don't know maybe maybe you're supposed to consider that i don't know what do you think i didn't really ever thought of it before but <laughs> maybe that's I, I mean he must have wanted it that must be part of what he wanted i mean i think you're right to keep saying the word dignify i mean if you, if, if you think about shakespeare these these would have been the comic characters in a Shakespeare play because they're low class and they're stupid. <laughs> you know, in a Shakespeare play, like this would be the comic. I know it's a little dark maybe, but it, this would be the, the comic side plot. And then the tragedy would be happening with the rich doctor or whoever, you know, tragedy is for kings. That's how that's how Greek tragedy works, right? You have to be great to have a great fall. But Faulkner's saying no to that. He's saying we all have our own great fall in our own way there's tragedy for every one of us he's he's democratizing tragedy i suppose yeah and also then dealing with her simpleness right and because they still get their simple pleasures so ants gets his teeth and his new wife oh it's so strange yeah but so one of the questions you have to deal with is this is probably getting into bigger territory okay what sort of freedom do you give an author to just create a completely different world i think that faulkner was kind of dealing with not fantasy but something that definitely wasn't real he is heavily present in his novels Mm -hmm. i mean they're full of faulkner you don't really get the sense that yeah 
try. It's hard to put your finger on what he's doing, but you can definitely say he's committed to it. Yeah, he sure is committed to it. You can say that. And so then, yeah, do you think that authors are free to create within their universes? And yes, I think that they are. But I think that I think the reason that Faulkner is difficult for me is because it doesn't necessarily feel self-consistent. Okay, it has to at least all be of a piece somehow. Yeah, you want there to be consistency. You want there to be unity. You don't. If you're writing a novel that's presenting itself as strictly realistic, you don't want someone to suddenly start talking like they wouldn't talk. You know, that's that's breaking. It's like you've made a contract with the reader about what type kind of story. You can tell a tall tale. You can tell a very down-to-earth tale. You can tell a witty tale. You can tell a not-witty tale. You can tell all kinds of stories, but... But isn't Faulkner telling this kind of story of poor people who happen to have <laughs> Shakespearean thoughts? I guess so. <laughs> There's nothing to elevate them. I guess my maybe maybe it's not so much a problem with the language as with the philosophy as with just finding what the driving force is behind why tell this story at all, you know? Yeah. If I knew if I knew what Faulkner was trying to say or do, then I could tell you whether he was successful or not. But instead it's like I don't know, if only Jake were here, he'd probably just say, You idiots. Yeah, is... I think Jake probably knows the answer. He probably knows all the we're answers. Just sort of plotting on in our own brooding fashion. Yeah, this is yeah. what happened. If you've ever if you've ever wondered what happens without Jake. He's our guiding star. He's our guiding star. I think he's avoiding coming in here. I think he is too. I think I've seen him walk past and like really fast, like with his head down, like he had to like really did yeah. <laughs> I mean many of my favorite authors are colorful and over the top and Jane Austen I don't think is probably being strictly realistic about how her characters would speak. She's giving them wit and color and nuance that real people have, but not as frequently or in such a contained way as as those characters do. And I think, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock says a movie is life with the boring parts cut out. And I'm okay with that. I think a book is life with the boring, you know, you cut out what's not interesting and you have a story in some sense. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, think about some of the authors we've read. Okay. Dickens. Do you think he presents the world as it is? I think he does. Or is it a Dickens world? It's a Dickens world, but it's also the world as it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's able to hold both things lightly in his hands enough that... So the author's voice in the way that they want to tell their story definitely comes through. Yes. Um, am I wrong to say... I mean, am I just crazy to even sense that there's a problem? Like, is Faulkner just doing what all the authors that we've read have done? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. And so you get you get someone who's bad at it, like Bram Stoker. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's just cheap and right. silly. Well, and heaven preserve us from when he tries to do like dialect or yeah, <laughs> the yeah. four pages of that old man in the graveyard that I still don't know what he said. <laughs> he said something. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, Stoker seemed to think it was interesting, whatever it was. <laughs> but even Mina and Lucy were just kind of like, eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> something about the something about the young sailor's grave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but go on, you're you're making a point. Yeah, so in or Steinbeck where he Steinbeck in some ways is a limited writer, so all his characters talk like Steinbeck sometimes is a function not of his artistry, but of his limitations as an artist, I think. Yeah, but even then he's got that sort of biblical tone mm-hmm. that permeates East of Eden. Right. And then his weird moments where he'll enter in as the 
history teller. Um, and then you get the authors like Tolstoy, where Tolstoy is definitely present, right. but then his characters are also very real. And I don't even know how Tolstoy does it. His artistry is just, he like seemed to find that magic where he could both be there and his characters could be there. I mean, in Tolstoy, that's an interesting example because you don't actually feel, you do feel Tolstoy's presence, but what you feel like is you could go to Russia, you could take a time machine, you could meet Levin, you could meet Anna, you could meet yeah. Vronsky, and they would just be those characters yes and that is very different than what's going on with faulkner but he's in a good grand tradition i mean you don't feel like you could go to denmark and take a time machine and meet hamlet but that doesn't make hamlet a play that we would have any other way yeah and so you don't get the sense that you could take a trip to the south and actually meet ants bundren not as we, we see into his soul or whatever you might meet somebody who has a similar life to him but he's not going to be ants because there's a sense that each of these characters are dramatic personae Mm -hmm. on the stage of faulkner's in his theater yeah it is a grand tradition so you have on the one hand tolstoy who somehow mixes both his high artistry with realism i think probably hemingway is close to that he's in that camp he's just not as masterful at it i think you could argue that virginia wolf tried to do that so when you read her you get the sense that you're just reading her characters not really virginia wolf what i'm trying to think of the other authors that we've read kipling you do not get the sense that the elephants would talk to you exactly the same way if you were there in the moment no you don't no you don't get that sense at all or ricky ticky or ricky ticky tab as great as he is it's yeah you probably just rick tick ticky at you yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh so we can answer this. I'm just hoping that door flies open. Jake comes in and is just like, but guys. I think we're just out there having a good time. Yeah, probably. I don't know. He probably doesn't have time for the likes of us. He's got all his pastor friends and everything. And probably just doesn't know what to say about. It sounded like he was kind of excited to be part of this discussion. I don't know. Whatever. Um, so, but anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. So... This is either going to be, this, what we've been saying is either going to be really good or just really boring. I don't know which. I don't know. I think it's an interesting it's yeah. a question that interests me at least. So the question is, which is better as art, right? Which do you expect? Which do you want a story to be? I think you definitely have more precedent for the artist, the, the author being more of a presence. And even with Tolstoy, he's definitely a presence. Mm-hmm. Dostoevsky, he's definitely a presence. So you you can have artists who just try to coldly distance themselves and just completely not be a part of their artwork. I think that almost always fails one way or another. I mean, it's... Yeah, because Hemingway is a part of his story, whether or not yeah. he wants to be. Well, I mean, it's his, Hemingway's limitations are what limits his story. He's a great writer, but his view of his, his worldview... Uh-oh. We recently paid a compliment by someone who said we didn't talk about worldview, so... Yeah. Well, now we did. Sorry. I'm so sorry. Hey, boy. He's limited by his worldview, Brandon. His, his machismo, his whatever. So then it's just a question of how much does the author put themselves into their story? And I think with Faulkner, he does it a lot. That's what I'm beginning to come to realize, is that as much as he is a part of this stream of consciousness, at least in As I Lay Dying, he's still very much a part of the story. Because... The characters he's creating and giving thoughts to would not have these thoughts unless they were characters in a Faulkner novel. Right. (laughs) Does that make any sense? Yeah. (laughs) Daryl, no, Addie would not have those thoughts about her husband unless she was a character in a Faulkner novel. She just never would. As opposed, again, to someone like Levin, who you could imagine just as great as a job as Tolstoy did bringing him to life, you could imagine there's a Levin out there. Yeah, he's avoiding coming into this room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's out there. He's He's, literally outside the room. Literally out there. We know where Levin is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We can can tell you. Drag him in here. I like authors that insert themselves. 
I think the author is inevitably shaping the work, and when you're upfront about it, it's generally not a bad thing. I think it fell out of fashion in the 20th century, and it's kind of too bad. Yeah. So you'd think I'd like Faulkner. Which is... I think a lot of people have a misconception about modernism that it's like this weird, cold, distant thing. But actually, the author in modernism is very present. Right. Think about T.S. Eliot. He's probably more a part of the wasteland than a lot of authors are in their poetry. Just the fact that it's so structured and carefully wrought means that the author is at the forefront. And so the same with Absalom, I mean, with Azalea dying, the fact that every sentence is so carefully structured and beautiful and you have these characters thinking what they're thinking means that the author is inevitably a part of the work. You know what I think it is, actually, as you talk, what I'm thinking is it's a selfishness that crept into literature and modernism and that is inherent in Faulkner that makes it difficult, I think, perhaps. I don't want to be too judgmental of some of these great guys, but Faulkner puts a great deal of himself into the novel so much so that he forgets sometimes to give you as the person who is in my opinion not Faulkner and me as an opinion I'm also going to go on record as not being Faulkner and I don't always know what he's thinking I don't know how to enter into it like he doesn't always give me the keys to see what's going on yeah and I can get them through study you know you can read <laughs> there's an anecdote there's another anecdote of Faulkner of somebody who said I think you know I don't remember which novel it was say it was as I lay dying you know they said I've read as I lay dying six times and I still don't understand it what should I do and Faulkner said read it seven um <laughs> just like okay thanks very helpful <laughs> yeah very helpful but it's because you think you're in competition with yourself there buddy and you're the artist couldn't you just like condescend to give me a little you don't have to make it simple. You can make me work for it. But at the end of the... Uh, I don't know. Am I being charlish? Am I demanding too much of him? No, I think of, like I mentioned earlier, atonal music. So, yeah, people appreciate the craft and the artistry behind atonal music. But do they really love it in the way that people love Brahms? Mm. I don't know why I chose Brahms, but do they, you know, yeah. and old Brahms. Yeah, old Brahms. Good Everybody, old. Brahms lullaby. And also, so, or do they love... Uh, do they really love Picasso in the way that they love... Da Vinci. Uh, da Vinci. Starry Night guy. Uh, Van Gogh. Van, Van, Van Gogh. I would say they probably don't. Just like nobody really loves the wasteland like Coleridge. Right. There's a certain education that you have to have, a certain sense of the craft that you have to have. And so it's an appreciation. Right. You can really admire atonal music, but it's hard to love it. And so it's kind of, it's kind of the same with Faulkner. But... So you say he's selfish, and there's a sort of selfishness, which I think is right. Existentialism is selfishness. It leads to that sort of selfish tendency, especially in art, a sort of inward gazing. Anything that's going to prioritize stream of consciousness seems like that would be inward gazing. But then I guess someone could argue that, no, actually, that's giving the characters complete freedom in trying to take the author out of it. Right. But I think we've proven, and I'm pretty convinced that Faulkner is more present in this than... Ever present. Like, I yeah. Mean. It's just, he's there. He's right. like, a, he, it is more, like we've said, theatrical. He's more presenting you something on a stage. It's, great. it's, like, it's like Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson's all over his movies. Yeah, it's just everything's been formed, even a character. It's, he could be a bad guy, a good guy, the love interest, the whatever. They're all Wes Anderson characters. Yeah, and so you can learn something and you can get something interesting out of it and you can appreciate the story, but you always understand that this is a Wes Anderson character. There's nobody who's actually Royal Tenenbaum in the world. Right. And never will be because he's in a Wes Anderson universe. Right. And there 
there is never going to be someone who is a Darl Bundren because he's in he's a Faulkner character. Right. But then, like we said, you you can say that about almost every author. Yeah. Except except for the master. Except well, for I guess for the two we've named the real masters, Tolstoy and Austin. Right. Mm-hmm. They're just the the coolest. Because <laughs> um. Knightley seems to exist on his own. Yeah. Levin seems to exist on his own. But then you go to Dickens, and I don't I don't think they're ever has been or ever will be a Dickens character. Right. They're always a Dickens character. Right. They're they're exaggerated a little bit. But here's the thing. I think people disguise... You know what? Maybe all I'm saying, trying to say about Faulkner is that he doesn't really do a good job. I hate to say this. I mean, I hate to judge Faulkner. I know he's a master. I mean, the his, the, the democracy of the dead, as Chesterton called it, is against me on this one. I, I, I It is with fear and trepidation that I, I judge a master such as Faulkner. But um, to me... At least part of the art is hiding that part of the art is, yes, the artist is ever present, but if you can make it feel like it lives and moves and breathes, that's a real accomplishment. And when you're reading Dickens, once you sort of accept that it's a grotesque, exaggerated world, then you have these wonderfully vivid characters that just feel like they live and breathe and move. And same thing for all the great authors we've named. Levin doesn't exist apart from Tolstoy, but Tolstoy's mastery is such that you feel that he does. And that's where Faulkner feels weird and a little false to me is that it's hard for me to ever believe that Daryl Bundren exists apart from Faulkner. Whereas even a very exaggerated, like even in Shakespeare, where everyone's speaking in iambic pentameter and it's very contrived and theatrical, once I enter into that world, the artistry is such that I'm just watching Hamlet and Polonius and Ophelia and I'm feeling their feelings and I'm watching them. Yeah, it's the, the most most of the time when I read a novel, I have the phenomenon of it takes me a few chapters before I actually get into it. It's like I have to learn the diction or the way that the author speaks. But then eventually you get to the point where it's just, you're there, you're used to it, and you can enter that world easily. And it seems like a world that's existing, at least while you're reading it, yeah. it's existing. You just don't get that sense with Faulkner ever. No, you get the sense of this. I'm asking you, you don't get it. I don't. I get the sense of a genius putting on a one-man show. Mm-hmm. And let's call him a genius. It's a great one-man show, but... Yeah. You're, you, you, perhaps churlishly, I'm always expecting it to transcend that and suddenly become a story, and it never does. It's just a collection of thoughts and performances. Beautiful thoughts, beautiful performances. It's yes. <laughs> I don't like yes at all, the band, because they have these great little uh, riffs and motifs, but then they don't come back. <laughs> they're, they're impermanent, you know? You don't have just like a chorus and then a, a verse and something that you can kind of latch onto as a listener. And so for me, yes has always been very frustrating because it's just like brilliant rock and roll after brilliant rock and roll after brilliant rock and roll, but they never allow it to coalesce. And I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, probably some of the same people that love Ivanhoe love Yes, and they've already stopped listening. But uh, and I, it's okay if you like Yes. I know I'm I'm on the wrong side of history about that one too. But. I don't think so. Who remembers Yes? My boot's already on your boat, kicking you away. Callbacks. <laughs> <laughs> kicking away. I thought you were quoting yes lyrics. No, 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 no. no. My boots, like, yeah, right, yeah, you know, they're on a, sort of yeah. helping giving a little shove. And the Ivanhoe. Well, how do you feel about it, Brandon? Did you feel some of the same disconnect, or am I just crazy? And I've always felt a disconnect from Faulkner. He doesn't move me in the way that like Tolstoy does. I don't know if that's what he's trying to do. I don't know if he's trying to teach me the same lesson lessons that Tolstoy is trying to teach me. And I don't know then that I want to be taught whatever lessons Faulkner's trying to teach. And that probably is the disconnect with Faulkner with me is that I appreciate what Flannery O'Connor is trying to do. And even Cormac McCarthy more than I appreciate the lessons that Faulkner tries to teach. And I know a lot of, I, I know a particular f- former acquaintance 
now a Facebook friend still. I like that progression. Former acquaintance, now Facebook friend. Still. Still. <laughs> Who would heartily disagree with me, and he sees the humanity in Faulkner. And sure, we've talked about how they're, now it's there. I mean, the very fact that he gives these sort of people a platform to exist as characters worth reading about. There's something there, right? There's yeah. some sort of political activism going on, probably. Mm. I don't know. It's not interesting enough to me <laughs> to really think that through. But, um, yeah, whatever worldview he has, it just isn't doing it for me. And I think that's important for an author. Yeah. Is whatever world they're crafting for you needs to be a world that you want to dwell in. Yeah. <laughs> for well, a while. We've read. We, I've, I mean, I'm... Uh, if we had time, I mean, I don't know what more books we're going to read in the bookening. There are depressing, despairing, pointless-seeming books. Perhaps Cormac McCarthy, when we do them next year, if we get to do them next year, will be one of them where we would like this, but not this, you know? <laughs> I'm just, I guess what I'm just trying to say, we're not opposed to this book on principle because it's kind of dour and humorless. and We like dour, humorless things. Right, yeah. I'm a dour, humorless guy. Oh, Brandon, you, you, you do yourself short. You do yourself short. You, you do yourself an injustice, sir. You are uh, dour and humorful. Thank you. You're not dour. Thank you. You are humorful. Oh, thank you, Brandon. Yeah, I think you're right. His world... Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry, Caitlin. We're talking about it's worldview. Like, it's like we were doomed to yeah. talk about it. You planted the seed. It's your fault, really. You planted the seed, and, and now it's haunting us. You're like... Uh, you're like the Civil War. You're like the Civil Slavery. War. <laughs> <laughs> haunting us. Right. We can't escape. Right. Because it's all that we can really think about. His worldview now, once you plant that seed, it's just like telling someone, you know... Not to think about the purple elephant. Right. All they'll think about is the purple elephant, which to be fair, if, if you're in the vicinity of a purple elephant, it's, you'd be an idiot not to think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a purple elephant. Yeah. You'd just be like, it's the most moronic thing you could do to ignore a purple elephant. Yeah. But I think it is, it's the world. I mean, if, 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 if literature is meant to, I don't know, I guess we could, we could, we, we could talk about the meaning of what, what's literature supposed to do, Brandon? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you tell us. You tell us what literature is supposed to do. <laughs> I don't know what literature is supposed to do. I don't know what what all a novel is, a, a novel is supposed to do. But I know that they work by exercising our imagination and by exercising our empathy, by making us picture things and by making us feel things. Would you agree with this? <laughs> I would. <laughs> I don't know what literature does, but I know it. I know it exercises our empathy and exercises our imagination. It makes us feel things and it makes us picture things and so given if, if if we can agree that it does that then it's either going to make us empathize with the right things or with the wrong things and it's either going to make us picture the right things or the wrong things and if we can agree with that then we can say it's somehow inescapably didactic whether it does a good job of that or not if we can agree with those principles what, what have you been saying postulates postulates um then we can say Perhaps that Mr. Faulkner is a bit of a failure because he is making us imagine and empathize a very godless world. Yes. And he does make us feel the pain of it, I suppose. But and at least there's some consistency there because that's what we ended up hitting Hemingway for. So I think what we're seeing is with a lot of these modernists, the empathy and the imaginings that they invite aren't empathies and imaginings that we as Christians should long for. 
Yeah. I mean, there is something noble about it, I suppose, and in some weird twisted way. I mean, they are, like you keep saying, Faulkner is trying to give dignity to these people, but he wants to give them dignity outside of God. And it, it, it ends up not making sense because without God, there isn't any dignity. And he's telling us that everything's impermanent that Addie didn't matter and it was just a joke. All the things that Daryl was thinking and feeling were just things that drove him mad because he couldn't just make his own reality. But what does he have all to base it on? If there isn't God, if there's nothing permanent, then why care that how Daryl feels? Why empathize at all, you know, if there's no there's no inherent value or worth and the only value is the value that we make for ourselves. If it's all just existential meaningless, then I don't know why I'm reading this book we should just be uh get us some uh we should get some blow we should score some blow that sounds amazing (laughs) heroin are you giving a shout out to no we're giving a shout out to math to math yes shout out to math (laughs) shout out to math i mean we should know what i mean is we should just like eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die yeah instead of being dour yeah not at all at least some author like or uh, an artist like dally or somebody like that brings a little surreal wild humor to the meaninglessness of it all some cool melting clocks and stuff and instead of just being a debbie downer about yeah. it all faulkner is i think that's that's the literary term i've been working for he's a bit of a debbie downer yeah and he also fails the uh, again i don't want to beat up on faulkner he's master craftsman just a master one of the best we've read probably but he does fail the the, the classic c.s lewis test that i think you've alluded to before in this podcast for me at least he fails the uh i think i have it here C.S. Lewis said, every good book should be entertaining. A good book will be more. It must not be less. Entertainment is like a qualifying examination. If a fiction can't provide that, we may be excused from inquiring into its higher qualities. Whoa. Mm. Take that, Faulkner. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's kind of entertaining if you if you're if you enjoy the craft of writing. I suppose he is. Uh, I'm not going to say he totally fails that test, but I think that proves kind of what's wrong with Faulkner's reply to the guy about you know oh, I'll I've read it six times and I don't understand it. And he's like, well, read it seven. I think there's a kind of arrogance there. The great, the truly great authors write works that have some surface charms that are great on your first reading and have some really deep stuff that you don't get until your seventh. The guy that writes a work that's almost intentionally almost clenches its jaw and says, you must read this seven times (laughs) before you get the profound truth. Eh, I don't know. I don't, there's something I'm not quite, comfortable about that that you know well i think it's a misunderstanding of what literature is doing part of what literature does is it tells you stories that are worth reading they have some intrinsic value to what's being played out in front of you and so that sort of inscrutability leave that to the philosophers let them play with that all they want they can have it you know literature looks at life and it gives us life and it it can dignify life for sure yeah it can even alter reality and the author can change it with however they want to with their voice but inscrutability is not i don't think that's a value that's worth anything no it's for people who their pride is their intellect and they want to make puzzles for themselves so mix their puzzles with feeling and so therefore they think that they've found some secret to the universe you get that a lot with like joyce admires with ulysses you know, they have your whole clubs and they'll just sit there and they'll try to figure out what does he mean here? Oh, what's he referencing here? Ooh, isn't that nice? Ooh, man, that's another illusion. Oh, what's that in the right. to? Oh, man, that's really cool. That's another illusion. He was like, okay, great. Fine. 
Yeah, he was a genius. He could work in a lot of illusions. But he, as we will see with Joyce, he could also then just write a really good story mm. when he wanted to, because he was a master craftsman. And so that does, then does bring us back to what the way they saw the world and what they were trying to do, and whether or not that is worth your time. And I do think that's the problem with Faulkner, is whether or not what he's the story he's trying to tell. Admittedly, he's trying to tell it in a very beautiful way. Yeah, gorgeous. But whether or not the story he's trying to tell is worth your time. I don't know that it is. If he was saying, and again, I mean, if you know me, if you've listened to the booking, you know I don't just want everything to be Pollyanna. I don't even like Pollyanna. I, I would be happy if the novel Pollyanna ended with an avalanche sweeping away Pollyanna because she's kind of annoying. But uh, uh, I always start out my things by saying the dumbest things in the world and then it completely derails the thing that I'm actually going to say. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, you know, every story that you can write depressing or brutal you can write about the sadness and you can do it but what it seems to me that Faulkner is basically saying is yeah he wants to give these people dignity but the way he wants to give them dignity is by dragging us all down to their level not by lifting them up to the level of creatures made in God's image who have any sort of inherent dignity what he wants to do is say you know what life is pretty pointless and things are pretty impermanent and that's a terrible tragedy not just for that's 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 the tragedy of of you brandon and the tragedy of me and you can see it played out in the bundrens and in their richer friends and in their poorer friends and in the pharmacists and in dewey dell and in darl he's just dragging us all down and ultimately i think that's what a lot of modernism was and is and what's left then is art it's like art for art's sake how convenient what's left is faulkner is great what he's doing has some kind of inherent value for some reason. Yeah. And so he's telling you the meaning of life. And the question is whether or not that's even the point of art to tell you the meaning of life. Art, like you were saying, the meaning of art is to, it's about imagination, like mm-hmm. you said, and not in like a cheap Barney way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually pulling out my bag as we did that, and my imagination bag, and a rainbow came out. A rainbow came out of it. It was pretty amazing. Some cartoon birds were flittering around my head. Um. But then empathy, with especially with literature, it trains you to empathize with characters. And yeah, with Faulkner, he's getting you to empathize with the Bundrens. But for what purpose? Right. I know that that friend I was mentioning earlier would say, well, yeah, he teaches you to empathize with the poor. But beyond that, why? Flannery O'Connor gets you to empathize or to not to empathize, to make you uncomfortable with yourself because she sees a reason and a purpose. And I'm not saying that every author who's worth reading has to have that. They don't. Certainly a non-Christian is, can write good literature. Right, sure. <laughs> but what's the point behind just trying to empathize with empathy? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, you read this book, you're not going to be entertained by, it's not like an Agatha Christie novel where you're just going to, you know, it might not be great literature, but you're wondering who done it. You know, there's, there's no, it's not like a, a Jane Austen or even a Harlequin romance where you're wondering whether the boy's going to get the girl. There's no, there's, there's, there's no fun to be had. So all you're left with is technique and meaning. And so then you look at the technique and you say, it's great. And then you look at the meaning and you say, ugh. Yeah. What's what's what what was your point, Faulkner? It's like Nietzsche. Yeah. It is quite a bit like Nietzsche. It's even fun to play around with these ideas some. But in the end it's just like sand. Just blows away. Sorry, it sounded like you were about to give the that quote Star Wars quote, the famous Your skin is like sand. Your skin is like sand. It's coarse. It's, I don't like sand. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway, if Jake was here, he'd probably 
be telling us about the meaning of life and all about the meaning of literature the meaning of literature and instead we just stumble about in our own blind way our own odyssey of blundering the stench of our own dead thoughts <laughs> incommoding the passerbys yep let's say we uh set this table on fire let's do it goodbye table <laughs> goodbye table <laughs> Uh, and see. <laughs>the beginning today was written and produced by nathan alberson and it also featured brandon chastine hey brandon chastine a southern gentleman if ever there was one that's right it did not feature jake menthol sorry oh, oh wait <laughs> is it about to is it gonna feature jake Menzel? i don't know he's standing outside the door right now is he because he coming in i don't think so he just got tapped on the shoulder come in what hey look who it is hey look who it is Hey. Hey, you want to do the uh, the booketing was produced by? Sure. <laughs> Here he is, and now a special guest to do the end credits for you. The booketing this week was written by Nathan Alberson and performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chastine, and not me, Jake Mensel. Nope. Until this point, now you just No. <laughs> for more great content, visit warhornmedia.com or find us on our social media sites, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Warhorn Media. Find Nathan at NotFamousNathan on Twitter or on Instagram. Find me at Jacob Mensal on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks, Jake. Great to have you. Thanks for playing. <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> hey, what do you think about As I Lay Dying? <laughs> Fresh take. Fresh take. Fresh take. Hot take. I think it's uh, pretentious art for art's sake that... I didn't have a lot of patience for, but still came to appreciate as I got a little deeper into it. You'll have to listen to the podcast to see whether or not we agree. Yeah, it's possible we went a totally different direction with it. <laughs> I bet that's I bet that's what you did. <laughs> I have no idea. We talked about the life-changing, redemptive power of Faulkner, actually. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, We're both well. new men. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We have been remade. Right. I'd rather watch Star Wars. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Bye. Good night, folks. <laughs>